It's been said that a true friend is hard to find. That a true friend is hard to find. In fact, a true friend is a gift from God. Many of you, as you sit here today, if you have a true, genuine friend, you would attest that they truly are a gift from God to you. True friends should not be taken for granted. In fact, most statistics say that two out of every five people, not just inside the church, but outside the church, that two of every five people struggle with loneliness. Loneliness is without a doubt a chronic condition. Maybe you at some point in your life have struggled with loneliness. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with loneliness. But most guests that visit our church will tell you that the one thing that drew them to our church is that they're searching for relationship. In other words, they're hunting to get outside of loneliness. So true friends are indeed hard to find. True friends are a gift from God. A recent study showed that inside the church, that as Christian men, Christian women, that most Christian men and women could not count a true friend for every finger on just one hand. And if you walk through your true friends, your genuine friends, your biblical friends, you probably would see that this study is proven to be true. That most of us, if not all of us, can't name a true, genuine friend for every finger that we have on one hand. Now listen, I'm not talking about acquaintances this morning. I'm not even talking about companions this morning. I'm not talking about your long list of Facebook friends this morning. I'm talking about true biblical friends. I want you to think about this. What stands out in your real friends to you? Like, what makes your real friends real friends to you? What attributes or characteristics or adjectives would you use to describe the friends that you would refer to as your true, genuine, biblical friend? Maybe you would use words like loyal. They're a true friend, they're a genuine friend because they're loyal, both to you and to others. Maybe you would say that your true friends are your true friends because they give you the benefit of the doubt. They don't assume the worst in you. In fact, they assume the best in you. And because they are such a true friend and a good friend and they assume the best in you, you know that you can say things and they're going to be gracious towards you and not take it in a way that you didn't intend. So for you, that's an attribute that stands out in a real genuine friend. Maybe for you, you're here today and you say, you know, my, my real friends, I know that they're my real friends because they've got my back. They've got my back. I, I know that if you go around them and you were to say something negatively about me, that they're going to stand up for me. They're not going to stay silent. They're going to speak out. They're going to protect me. And that shows that they really are my true friends. Some of you, you have true friends. But quite frankly, your true friends don't push you to Jesus. Your, your true friends, what you do with your true friends is you justify your gossip by saying, you know what, it's okay because they're a true friend. I can say these things to this person and it's okay because of their relationship to me. Which, by the way, is absolutely an error and absolutely biblically inaccurate. Gossip's never justified by no matter who you say it to. 
We have very clear biblical perimeters for how we are supposed to speak to one another and how we're supposed to handle conflict for when it occurs. So let me ask you again, what stands out to you about your real friends? You know, when you think of loyalty, you think of giving the benefit of the doubt, you think of not assuming the worst, you think of having your back, you think of all the different things that might come to your mind. The most important thing for you to remember is that though those things are important to have in friends, they're not what's most important to have in true biblical friends. In other words, real friends tell you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. Real friends, as a top priority, they point you to Jesus. They never justify why it's okay to pull you away from Jesus. Real friends, they hold you accountable, even if it's unsolicited, even if you didn't ask for it. They hold you accountable, why? Because the most important thing to them is your walk with Christ. Real friends, they support you, they cheer you on, they want you to be the best version of you that you can be. And the best version of you is not defined by any book that was written by any secular author. The best version of you is defined by who you were created to be as you continue to form and be shaped into the likeness of Christ. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the deepest friendships in all of Scripture. We're going to turn our attention to the friendship between David and and Jonathan. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 18 is the same passage of Scripture that we were in last week. Uh, we're just going to cover a different part of this chapter. So we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, but listen to me well this morning. Um, instead of covering just a few verses, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to cover three chapters. All right, so we're going to cover 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, and 1 Samuel chapter 20. But here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to walk through all three of these chapters exhaustively. We would be here all day, right? Some of you have the fare to get to in Perry. We're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is I'm going to brush over these things today um, so that you can go back home this week and you can study for yourself 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, and 1 Samuel chapter 20. But you are going to be given some lenses by which you can look at this text through. Most importantly, look through the lens of Christ. We understand that. But secondly, look through the lens of David. Like, how did David approach his friendships? Look at the lens of Jonathan. How did Jonathan approach his friendships? Look through the lens of Saul. How did Saul approach friendship? And start to think through what your friendships look like in relation to the characters that are in these three chapters. That's what I'd like for you to do this week. So we're going to cover these three chapters, but here's the question that we want to answer today. The question is this, what does real biblical friendship look like? Now last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, you can go online and catch yourself up. We've been walking through the life of David in a series called The Broken King. And we're headed, we're going to be in this series all the way until the month of December, really the first one or two weeks in December. And then this series is going to shift from the broken king to the perfect king. And we're going to talk about the life of Christ because he's coming, you know, that we celebrate that in the Christmas season, right? So that's how these two things are connected. But last week, we talked, I kind of spoke to you as a shepherd. This week, I want to speak to you more as a teacher. Last week, I shepherded your heart how to handle things that don't necessarily go our way. This week, I want to teach you things that are important in your daily 
life, especially how you handle your friendships. So we're answering the question, what does real biblical friendship look like? Read with me in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. It says this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, talking about David, as soon as David finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So what's going on here to set the text? If you remember, when David comes off the battlefield after uh, beating Goliath, Uh, The rest of Israel, they go out and they start fighting the rest of the Philistines. But David comes off the battlefield and he comes before Saul. And in one hand, the Bible tells us that he has literally the head of Goliath. And in the other hand, he has the sword that he killed him with. Or not that he killed him with, that he decapitated him with. I know that would be so gruesome, hate being so gruesome, but that's the Bible, right? So he comes off the battlefield and he goes and he talks to Saul and he's sharing with Saul about the defeat of this giant Goliath. And as David and Saul are speaking, as they're engaged in conversation, the Bible is telling us that something supernatural is taking place in the heart of Jonathan. Jonathan is a spectator. He's watching this. He's also the son of the king, King Saul. And Jonathan is watching this and he notices that his heart begins to turn for David. And what makes this text so strange is that David and Jonathan did not have, as far as we know, any previous relationship. This is the first or the beginning of their friendship with one another. David and Jonathan, they did not grow up in the same neighborhood. David and Jonathan, they did not roam the same streets. David and Jonathan, they didn't play on the same sport teams. David and Jonathan, they didn't play in the same band. There is nothing that would have drawn these two men together outside of this event that we're reading right here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. But yet something supernatural is taking place, the Bible tells us, that's knitting together the souls of these two men. Now, I want you to push pause on that. I want you to hold that thought. I'm going to deviate away from that thought because I I believe there's something that needs to be addressed that we don't often often address in, in the church. There are some modern scholars who have tried to twist this text to make it seem like David and Jonathan are gay. In other words, there are some modern scholars who are using this text to prove or to validate a claim that maybe there's, the, the Bible presents a relationship that makes homosexual relations permissible. In grace and kindness and love, I want you to know that there is nothing further from the truth than that. In fact, I would say this. For anyone to arrive at that conclusion, it's going to tell you two things. First, They are reading the Bible with a preconceived agenda. They have an agenda. They want the text to say what they want it to say. And they're searching scripture for something to validate what they already feel or think. That's not how we read scripture, church family. Like we go to to scripture and we read it for what it is. Let the text talk. And as we read it, no matter if we uh, agree with it or not, we have to change our way of thinking. So first, they are reading the Bible with a preconceived agenda, but secondly, in order to think that thought, you have to have a very shallow thought process on what friendship looks like. 
You know, I will admit this. We, we've said this as a society. The more connected we've become through social media, the more disconnected we really are. You've heard that. And there's nothing further from the truth. It's true. We are a disconnected society, but we have more resources and means to be more connected than we've ever had before on the face of this planet. And there's something interesting about that. What it's done to us is it's caused us to settle for superficial, shallow friendships where our souls are not entwined to one another. And the Bible here is showing us what a biblical friendship is going to look like. What, what our friendships should emulate in and of our own lives. So the Bible's painting a picture of what a loving connection between two loyal and loving friends should be. See, in the biblical world, to assume anything more than that would be an extremely strange concept. To assume that these two men are engaged with anything more than friendship would be extremely abnormal in the biblical times. Homosexual relationships would have been unheard of. In fact, they would have been forbidden in ancient uh, Judaism, also in early Christianity. So just know that that's not what's happening here. So then the question becomes is, why does the Bible highlight the depth of their relationship? Like, if, if it's not important, the Bible wouldn't tell us about it. So, so it must be important so the question is, is why does the Bible take time to address it? It's because Jonathan is the firstborn son to the king. Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne. Jonathan is the prince. When Saul dies, the throne goes to Jonathan. But you now know that God has a different plan. Because after 1 Samuel chapter 16 and into 1 Samuel chapter 17, you know now that there's another anointed king, and his name is David. So, so God is showing you that though the throne should responsibly go to Jonathan, it's not going to go to him, it's going to go to David. See, Jonathan is humbly accept, accepting the fall of the house of Saul, his own family. But he's also humbly accepting the rise of the house of David, that David would be the one to occupy the throne. So this friendship will be the means that God uses to move David into that kingship. That's why this text is so important. Because you're going to see that God is moving some pieces around to move David to his rightful position. And that is the throne of Israel. So it's a deep love, it's a loyal love, it's an unselfish love that Jonathan has for David. And the interconnectivity of their friendship that they have between these two men is one that you and I should desire in our own lives. So I want you to watch how this story continues. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> it says, And Saul took him that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he, was, that he had on, on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Again, Jonathan is the prince Jonathan here has a very positive reaction to David. Jonathan loves David. 
Jonathan wants to honor David. And Jonathan is honoring David in this text by stripping himself of all of his princely garments, and he's giving them, those princely garments, over to David. He's recognizing that God has chosen David and not himself, not Jonathan, to be Israel's next king. And what's so fascinating about this particular text of Scripture is that if Jonathan were like me and you, Jonathan should be harboring bitterness in his own heart. He should be a bit resentful because he wants the throne. But he's not that way at all. So we see what a good, loyal friend looks like in the life of Jonathan. There's no jealousy. There's no bitterness. There's no resentment. He's a true and he's a humble friend. So that's how Jonathan is responding to what's happening in this text. The second question I want to ask this morning, how is Israel responding? Like, how did they respond to this? Look at verse 6. It says, as they were coming, remember, they were sent out. They fought with the Philistines. They defeated the Philistines after the battle with Goliath. So now they're headed home. Okay, they're coming home. And it says, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. It says that they had tambourines with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated and listened to the song that they were singing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Literally, David has become a national hero overnight. This is the most Justin Bieber thing you'll ever hear in Scripture. Justin Bieber puts out one YouTube video, and he doesn't exist the day before, and he exists the day after, and you know who he is, and you laugh because you didn't know who he was before the YouTube video. But now David, just one story later, becomes a national hero. Before Goliath, Nobody knew David. Remember the story? Before Goliath, his own father forgot about him in the middle of a field. His brothers forgot about him because he was in the middle of the field, tending sheep, doing the lowliest of jobs. But after Goliath, everybody knows David. In fact, the Bible says they make their way into the streets as if their local college team just won the national championship and they are singing and they are dancing and they are celebrating the life of this man who has already gone to battle and defeated the great giant Goliath. That's how the Israelites respond. But how does Saul respond? We see how Jonathan responds. We see how Israel responds. But how does Saul respond? In verse 8 it says, And Saul was very angry. And this saying that these women were singing to each other displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You know what that means? Saul gave David the stank eye. That's what it means. Saul, remember, wants David dead. I love these words by C.S. Lewis. They're going to be on the screen for you, but listen to them, and listen to them rather intently. All right, you don't have to take out your phone and take a picture of this slide, by the way. You can access the notes through the app, um, but this is a, a profound quote. This is what C.S. Lewis said. It says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. 
Pride doesn't get pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. That's the condition of King Saul's heart right now. King Saul doesn't care if you celebrate David. Just don't celebrate David more than me. There's the arrogance and the pride that's beginning to swell up within his own heart. You've seen this for a couple of chapters now. It's only intensifying even in this chapter we're reading today. He doesn't want to share his own personal glory with another. He wants to have his own personal glory for no one but himself. Saul wants David dead. Saul is going to do anything and everything within his power to make sure that the, that the Achilles heel of his life is dealt with. That, that, that this pest that follows him around is done. So in the next two chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 Samuel chapter 20, David goes on an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you see Saul bring David close, deceiving, bringing close, befriending, and then, immediately, it's like a switch flips. Saul wants David dead. This goes on five separate times in two chapters. I'm going to bring David close, and then I'm going to try to kill him. And then things are going to be good again. I'm going to bring him close, and I'm going to try to kill him. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. You know the story. Five different times, David willingly put himself close to Saul, and five separate times in two chapters, Saul attempts to kill him. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David tells Jonathan, Jonathan, your dad wants me dead. And Jonathan looks at David and says, David, I think you're over-exaggerating a little bit. My dad doesn't want you dead. Maybe you're looking way too much into things. So what they do as good friends is they decide to put a plan together. Well, let's develop a plan, and let that plan reveal to us the true heart of Saul, the king. If he does this, we'll know that he wants to be dead. If he does that, we'll know that he doesn't. So what's the plan? Well, the plan is, is that David will skip the new moon feast that's coming up. The new moon feast was just basically a monthly banquet where Saul brought in all of his generals, and they celebrated and they feasted at the table together. And it went over for, you know, a certain amount of days. And the first day, Saul would know or he would learn that David's not going to shut up or show up. <laughs> He's not going to shut up either. You'll find that out later. He's not going to show up this time. But that's what Jonathan and David said. Well, the new moon feast is coming. David, David's not going to go. He's going to stay out here. He's going to hide behind a rock, hide in a cliff. And Jonathan will go in. Jonathan will tell his dad, hey, David's not showing up. He had some family business to attend to, so he had to go back home. And the, the deal was, is if Saul gets angry, and that anger becomes obvious, then what Jonathan's going to do is he's going he's, to, basically he's going to play a game of fetch the arrow. Like, I ain't going to explain all that to you. You just have to read the scripture. He's going to shoot some arrows in the field. If the arrows go behind you, he's saying, David, you need to flee. If the arrows go before you, he's a pretty good shot, by the way. If the arrows go before you, um, then you can come and you can join the feast. That's kind of how this thing works out. Well, 
Jonathan tells his dad, Saul, David ain't coming to the feast. First day, actually, if you read the, the, the text, the first day, Saul had some grace. He's thinking, oh, he must have touched something unclean. So because he's unclean, he's dealing with that, and then he'll be here tomorrow. Well, the next day, he doesn't show up either. So he talks to Jonathan again, and Jonathan says, nah, he actually went home. He's not coming at all. And at that moment, the Bible tells us essentially that the anger of King Saul was kindled against Jonathan. And what did Jonathan, do, or what did Saul do to his own son, Jonathan? The Bible tells us he took a spear and he threw it at his son, barely missing him. So Jonathan knew, without a doubt, he wants David dead. So David and Jonathan, they meet up one last time. This is one of their last recorded conversations in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42. It says this. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So again, Jonathan and David essentially affirm, if not validate, their love and their vow to one another. And they essentially say, hey, I've got your back. You've got mine from this day forward. In fact, even when we have kids, I'm going to continue to have your back, and you're going to continue to have my back, and we're going to protect them as well. Now listen, there's a lot of sermons preached about a lot of things, but one that you rarely hear ever in the church is a sermon preached about friendship and what tr true, biblical, godly friendship should look like and could look like in your life and in my life. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take this text that we just read, 1 Samuel 18, brushing through 1 Samuel 19, a little bit of 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we're going to pick out some things that show us what biblical friendship should look like. Remember, the question on the table this morning is what does real biblical friendship look look like. And I believe that there are four marks of biblical friendship that you and I should be looking for in our friendships, in our lives. And if these things don't exist, the good news is there's still time. You can, you can bring these things into your friendships with one another. So four marks of biblical friendships. The first one is this. Biblical friendship requires humility. Biblical friendship, it requires humility. See, Jonathan's support of David means the loss of his future kingship. That requires humility. To know that by showing support to you, that I won't be in a position of authority, that I won't be in a position of prominence and power. Taking off his robe and giving his sword to Jonathan uh, is Jonathan's way of vowing his support for David as the future king. In this story, Jonathan is the veteran quarterback. He's in his 40s. David is the rookie, the 18-year-old, the 19-year-old that has just become a part of the team. And what Jonathan is doing is Jonathan is saying, I'm putting the ball in your hands. You're the leader of the team now. Not only is, the, is he the veteran quarterback, he's in the prime of his career. And he's saying to his team and he's saying to his friend, I will humbly take the back seat and follow God's plan as he leads you forward. What Jonathan is doing is the opposite of what we would expect in our worldly friendships. See, in the world, relationships are built on what we can get out of them. 
But in the kingdom of God, relationships should be built on what we give to them. I'm going to say that again just because I think sometimes we miss it. In the world, relationships are built on what we can get out of it. I'm going to bring you close because of something that's in it for me. But in the kingdom of God, relationships should be built on what we give to it, not necessarily what we get out of it. Jonathan wasn't in this friendship with David so, so that he could get something from it. He wasn't in it for himself. He was in it for the good of his friend. Let me say it like this. This is what humility is. Humility is the willingness to decrease so that others can increase. Did you hear that? Humility is the willingness for me to decrease so that those around me might increase. Our natural response to life is not to decrease. Our natural response in life is to increase. I'm not just talking about friendships right now. I'm talking about whatever you want to, to, to include. In general, we don't typically like to decrease. We want to increase. In general, we don't approach friendships and relationships to see what we can give to them. We approach them to see what we can get out of it. In general, we don't, we don't find a church based on what we can give to it. We find a church based on what we can get out of it. In all of our relationships, this is how it works. Let me give you a few examples, and this is not to guilt you. It's just a few examples that came to my mind this week that I've been guilty of before in my own individual life. So I'm putting myself out there a little bit today, and I hope that's okay. There was a time in mine and Kayla's life where we had two girls. We have four kids now. But there was a moment where we had two girls, and every time we would go to church on Sunday, we were just good church members. That's all we desired to be. We showed up to church. We attended church. I worked with a Christian-based nonprofit organization. Uh, so we were just trying to be good church members. And we would go to church and we would drop our kids off in the kids' ministry without ever offering to serve in the kids' ministry. You see what I just did? I'm here to see what I can get out of this not to see what I can bring to this. And some of you, you're guilty of the same thing. You can, you can put life group in there, take a kid's ministry out. Life group is not designed just for you to have a teacher teach you a lesson and you to go to the next thing to hear another lesson, to go to the next thing to hear another lesson. No, life group is designed for biblical application. You hear the word of God and then you start to think through how I apply the word of God and I'm in the context of community with God's people and they're speaking into my life and I'm speaking into their life and we contribute. We bring our gifts and our skill sets to make this group the best group it can be. That doesn't only mean on Sunday morning, it even means missionally. Everything God does from Genesis to Revelation, you see the missional heart of God. So even in your life group, you should see that we are built around mission. So what it means is that you bring that gift to the table. How many of us go to life group and we're just there for the good lesson? We're just there for the good fellowship. We're just there for the good donuts and coffee that somebody showed up to bring. Or do we go to see what we can give and our contribution and the gifts that God has equipped us with? Do we exist truly as a body of many members with many gifts and we're stronger when we work together? Or do we just go to consume? What about church? What about church? 
I thought about that this week as well. I started to think, I think Jesse did a great job with our giving portion. But think about that. Think about how many people show up on a Sunday morning. I'm not just talking about here. I'm talking about all across the world. They show up on a Sunday morning, and this is literally what their lives look like. They had a bad week. They got up early on Sunday morning. They came to church. They wanted to hear good music. They wanted to hear decent preaching. They wanted to, you know, they wanted things to go smoothly, whatever the case may be. They wanted to see some smiling faces, and they wanted to be greeted by some, some kind people. They do that. But they don't give, they don't serve. And when I say give, I'm not just talking about giving of their talent. I'm talking about giving of their treasure. They don't give, they don't serve. What does that mean? By nature, we see what we can get, not necessarily what we give. Humility is a willingness to decrease so that others might increase. Listen, if any friendship should have been built on jealousy and hatred, it was this one that Jonathan and David had. But the one thing that kept their friendship from heading in that direction is their loving devotion to God first and then also their humble service to one another. It's what kept their relationship on track is that they stayed humble. They served God and they served one another. And it required humility in their life for them to have the relationship that they had. And it's going to require humility in your friendships for you to have the relationship with each other that you need to have. Let me give you an example. Jesus tells us to humble ourselves. There are not a whole lot of ways that you and I can think of that we could go out and humble ourselves tomorrow. But one of the most humbling things that we can do is have to confront a brother or sister in sin. It's humbling. Unless you're super haughty and super arrogant, the most humbling thing that I've ever had to do is sit before a friend, a brother in Christ, and say, man, I've got to call you out on this. It's humbling for me to do it, and it's humbling for them to have to receive it. It's humbling. Humility is required in friendship if it's going to be biblically saturated and biblically grounded. So biblical friendships require humility. Secondly, biblically, biblical friendships require commitment. Biblical friendships require commitment. When you walk through these chapters, Jonathan had to tell David some awkward things, church family. Walk through chapter 19 and chapter 20 and see all the awkward conversations that Jonathan had to have with David and also that Jonathan had to have with his own daddy. Jonathan had to go before his own dad and basically say, no, you're wrong. David's a good dude. David's trying to follow the ways of the Lord. You're not. That is hard to do when you're a child to a parent. But how was Jonathan able to do this? Jonathan wasn't trying to make David feel good. He was trying to save David's life. You hear what I'm saying? Some of us are surrounded by friends that they exist just to try to make us feel good. When in reality, they should be more concerned about our lives. See, a real friend thinks about your safety and flourishing more than they think about their comfort. You hear that? A real friend, a true friend, a biblical friend thinks more about your safety and also your thriving and your flourishing as an individual than they do their own comforts. A real friend's committed to telling you the truth even if the truth hurts. King Solomon was David's son. And as you know, King Solomon was one of the wisest and wealthiest men to ever live. King Solomon wrote a lot of the book of Proverbs. Very good statements for you to read. But there's one particular proverb that came to mind this week that I feel like Solomon no doubt learned from his dad, David. And that was Proverbs 27.6. Listen to these words. You've heard it. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Now, if I could ask you by a show of hands this morning, which one of you would rather, or how many of you would rather have a kiss than a wound? Most of us are going to choose the kiss. It just depends on who's doing the kissing, right? Um, I, I, I say that kidding. Uh, it just came to my mind and some things come out of my mouth that come to my mind. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But most of us would choose that. We, we'd rather be kissed on the cheek than have to go out and get a, you know, a slice of concrete across our kneecap. But according to Scripture, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse deceit for the kisses of an enemy. Kisses always feel better than wounds. If you only have people around you who give you kisses, life will always feel good, but it will only be momentarily. It would never last, and it won't form you, and it won't shape you, and it won't help you. It just makes you feel good. But if it's a faithful wound from a friend, then the Bible is saying that that has the potential to change and transform your life. Listen, a real friend doesn't always tell you what you want to hear. A real friend tells you what you need to hear, even if you didn't ask. And some of you, what you do is you push out your real friends and you bring your superficial friends a lot closer. You bring them closer because they make you feel good about yourself and you're stiff-arming and pushing out the people that care about you most. And that's not what David and Jonathan did. David and Jonathan removed the fluff and brought the hard stuff closer to them. Why? Because they were in commitment. They were in covenant. They vowed to look after each other. And the same thing is true of you and I. We need friends that we're committed to, that are committed to us, and they care more about our safety and flourishing than they do their own comfort. Biblical friendship requires intentionality. Requires intentionality. Friend match. It's a matchmaking service where you can go find friends. They have dating apps. They have dating services where they also have friend services. Friend match is one of those. You know, if you take friend match or really any platonic friendship matchmaking service, they would not have matched David and Jonathan together. I, I mean, you could fill out any survey you want, and nobody's going to put David and Jonathan in the room together. Jonathan was a 40-year-old man. David was a teenager. Jonathan was a prince and a future king. David was a shepherd boy. Jonathan grew up in a palace with royalty all around. David grew up literally in the middle of a field, a pasture with sheep all around. They weren't golfing buddies, and they didn't have wives that were pregnant at the same time. There was nothing that should have brought Jonathan and David together. Yet they made a covenant to look after each other, even when things were terribly inconvenient. And in that covenant, they made the decision to be intentional with one another. You do know that intentionality requires vulnerability. Some of you don't like that. Intentionality requires vulnerability. It requires opening yourself up and letting people in. But when you open yourself up and you let people in, you need to know that you are running a risk because people are sinful and they will hurt you. Anybody been hurt by someone else? Just me and you, darling. I'm sorry. Anybody else been hurt by somebody else or are we just thinking about Italian oven? Like the line's long, you got time. Listen, intentionality is not always easy. 
But it's a must. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for just a second. These ladies, they can go to lunch for 30 minutes, and man, they know every single detail about your life, their mama's life, your mama's life, and they know all of it, right? They know all the baggage, they know all the drama, they know all the junk. But us men, true story. A comedian said this one time. He was talking about the difference in relationships between men and women, or men and men, and women and women. And he said, us men, we can go play golf for four hours. And we can go play golf for four hours with a friend of ours that's walking through a divorce. And we can come home, and our wife will ask us, well, how is Doug? I guess he's good. He's good? Things good between Doug and Amber? I heard they're walking through a divorce. I, yeah, I guess. Didn't come up. So you just spent four hours on the golf course with Doug, and you don't know anything about his relationship with Amber. What, did I say Amber the first time? <laughs> hope so. <laughs> you don't know anything about that relationship? No? And the, the, the lady looks at the man and is like, did you really go golfing with Doug? <laughs> I mean, how did you go golfing for four hours and not talk about anything of any substance? You know the answer? Because we're men. That's what we do. Men, if you're going to have good friends in your life, it's going to require vulnerability. It's going to require golf games of four hours that you actually talk about things of substance. It's going to require lunch meetings where you actually get into the details of each other's lives. It's going to be where you ask the hard questions and quit trying to build one another up with fluff. It's going to mean that we have to get to the itty-gritty, like deepest, darkest parts of one another's life. What made Jonathan and David's relationship so unique is they walked through such hardship together. And they were committed to one another through that hardship. And as men, we feel like either we'll be frowned upon or our friends might flee. And we can't look at life like that. We have to understand that God wants us to exist in friendship that emulates and models our relationship first with him. And he is a God who will not flee. And we need to be friends who don't flee in the face of our friends' uh, you know, conflict and, and affliction and pain and turmoil and grief and sorrow and sadness. We need to stick in there and be committed and be intentional. Intentionality includes vulnerability. And vulnerability is risky. But there's a fourth thing. And by the way, just want you to know, the rewards of that kind of friendship always outweigh the risk. And the fourth and final thing is biblical friendship is inspired by Jesus. They're telling me I've went over time by four minutes and 22 seconds. Biblical friendship is inspired by Jesus. The love and friendship that David and Jonathan shared was no doubt inspired by their relationship with Christ. I mean, think about this. David points to Christ. That's who he is in this text as you and I read it. He is a picture of our loving Savior. David was threatened severely by Saul. His life hung literally in the balances. And each time, David did not seek revenge against Saul. Five different times, David was willing to come back close to him. Instead, he entrusted himself to God and God alone. And like David, Jesus was threatened. And what does the Bible say that Jesus did? First Peter chapter 2, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. 
David is a friend that points us to Christ, a greater and a truer friend. Jonathan points us to Jesus. Jonathan is a friend to be desired. You should want a Jonathan. I should want a Jonathan. And we should demand that we find a Jonathan in our lives. He is a loyal friend to David in every single way. And like Jonathan, Jesus is a friend, but a better friend. And he says he's a friend that sticks closer than even a brother. The covenant between David and Jonathan, yes, it is rich, but the covenant that Jesus makes with us is much richer. It is a covenant that will never be broken. He is the only constant that you and I will ever encounter. He's the only friend that will, ever, that will never leave you, never forsake you, never deny you, never abandon you, never flee from you, never bow out when things get difficult. Instead, he will stay right there with you in the good times and the bad times, shaping you and molding you into the image of himself so that you might exist more and more every day for the goodness and the glory of our great God. That's what biblical friendship looks like. My question to you this morning is not do you have a good biblical friend? My question to you this morning is are you one? Are you a good biblical friend to those who are close in your circle? And if not, Will you fall on your face before the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry for not being the friend to those people you've put in my life that you've called me to be. But from this day forward, I'm gonna use my friendships intentionally in a way that brings you honor and bring you glory. Ma'am, sir, some of you, you're here today and quite frankly, you have no clue what this friendship even looks like because you've not tasted and seen the goodness of the friendship that has been offered to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And maybe for you, you can come to know Christ today as the true and the ultimate friend. And from that friendship, you will learn that you can be empowered through the Holy Spirit to go and be a good friend to 